been said that there are two kinds of people in the world, chess people and checkers people. And uh, if you don't know already, I'm a checkers man. Uh, I do not have the patience for chess. I also, that's what makes me a really bad poker player because to be good at poker, you have to actually invest mental space and looking at everybody else and it's a patient thing and I have no patience, and so I, I, I'm a crazy eight guy. You know, if you're a, that's a fast game, you know. Uh, this past week I was reading uh, about the 15th century city of Maristica, Italy. It's near Venice, uh, and they actually, it still exists today, but in the 15th century, these folks had an interesting system for making their young men compete for the right to wed their daughters. Uh, Instead of having two guys challenged to a sword fight, uh, what they would do was uh, make them play chess. And and not the kind of chess you think, and I think, like on a board. It was a human chess match. They would uh, have them stand up on this very high balcony and and make calls, and it would take a long time. Crowds would come around. and this village, Maristica, now each year honors this legend with a full city, full costume. It's like a madrigal dinner all around this human chess game. It's, it's an amazing event, live horses for the knights and the whole enchilada. And I got to thinking a couple of thoughts. One is a crowd would certainly make a chess game more interesting for me as would be like an added component where actual harm could come to one of the pieces, you know, like a UFC sort of chess thing where if you, you know, if it's like king on knight, then it's like they got to go at it, like sort of, no, not so much for you. Um, But I definitely think being around other people and knowing what was going on would be certainly helpful. Uh, Historically, there have been human chess games that did feature these uh, medieval kings on their balcony, sitting above the human players in this enormous outdoor football field-sized chessboard and ordering the movement of these pieces. Uh, And here's the interesting thing from the perspective of the human chess piece, is you can't see what the king can. And, And I got to thinking about that as I pondered today's text. It occurred to me how much learning to trust God is involved in being a Christian how frequently we find ourselves limited in our perspective and in need of being able to simply trust that the one who is sovereign and the one who is over all knows what they're doing. Now, after the first service, Mish Bergson pointed out to me that for those of you with great uh, historical training, the image of the medieval king controlling your life as a chess piece isn't what you'd call warm and fuzzy. So uh, I would like to point out two very clear distinctions between medieval kings and our King Jesus. One is uh, Jesus is good all the time. His purposes are good all the time. And he actually loves us even as he moves our lives to accomplish his purposes and glorify himself. The other thing about Jesus is he always wins. You know? So no matter, what the, no matter what the game is, uh, in the end, Jesus is the one who wins and glorifies. That doesn't mean necessarily that the move he is making in your life is going to be easy. Or in the short term, it isn't going to feel like loss. But what we can be assured of is that Jesus does have the authority to be able to control the events of our day. 
And this message will focus again on that. When I talk about authority sometimes, though, it's a challenge. Because right away, the word is a turnoff, especially in an individualistic culture like ours. So the words submit to authority are almost profane for people. Because they think, uh, I, I, that I rebel against authority. Isn't that how our country was born? We rebelled against the king's authority. Uh, we're all called to submit ourselves to authority, and I'll be clear about this. As long as those authorities aren't requiring disobedience to God or making you violate your conscience in some way. But life is filled with this paradigm. Spouses are called by Scripture to a oneness that requires a mutual submission out of one, to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children are called by Scripture to, uh, to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is good. Uh, and us in the workplace, all of us have people to whom we report, and we are ultimately going to submit to their authority. But more than what is required, Scripture says that authority is a good thing. When it's properly done, and when it's overseen by Christ, when it's guided by Scripture, it produces a handful of benefits for us, not the least of which is wisdom. Because God uses others to guide us in our decision-making. Other people provide a perspective that we don't have. And to rail against authority is to rob oneself of wisdom. In order to be able to benefit from God's perspective on life, we have to be open to the idea, we have to be humble enough to recognize that we can't see the whole chessboard. So in this process, we're ultimately submitting to God and saying, guide me through the means of grace you provide, your word, other people. His word says that we are broken and incapable of knowing our internal perspectives that are distorted or our motives within that are twisted. Last week, we finished our sermon, which you can hear online, of course. You can hear all the backlog of messages in this John series at our website but we concluded with King, King Solomon's wise impartation from Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, where the Proverbs say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The Gospel's goal is to glorify God, but to restore us to our Creator and help us to trust His sovereign plan for our lives. And knowing Jesus is what enables people to believe that God is both good and sovereign. See, when you know He's good, then when you get this piece of Him being the overseer of all things, it provides liberty, it provides peace. It helps you know that you don't have to be in control. By way of review from last week, we didn't have enough time, and you never really have enough time in a window of 30 to 35 minutes to, to talk through all of the elements of a particular passage. But what Jesus is talking about in verses 17 and 18 of John 5 is the Trinity. Let me read the verses. We covered these last week. But for us to move on into what is now Jesus' first discourse of John of the Gospel of John. This new section of John begins a series of discourses and Jesus, of course, upset these 
particular religious leaders by healing on the Sabbath. And now he's going he's to really speak to the substantive issue. And Jesus said this in verses 17 and 18, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but it was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Trinity, if you did not know, is not defined as such in Scripture. It doesn't say in chapter so-and-so, verse so-and-so, book so-and-so. Trinity, three people, one being. This, this is not defined. But what we do formulize from Scripture is we have three individual persons, people with mind, will, and emotions, who all are ascribed the being of deity. God the Father... God the Son, who incarnated in Jesus, and then God the Spirit, whom Jesus introduces us to in John 15, which we'll get to in a bit, where all three of these are called individual persons of the Trinity, but yet they share one being. In Orthodox Christianity, we say the Son is equal to the Father in power and glory and in being. As John 1.1 clearly stated in the beginning, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Yet, in how theologians distinguish between the persons of the Trinitarian God, the Son willingly submits to the Father. In Jesus' personhood, he recognizes the preeminence of the Father. So Jesus' discourse is going to begin in verses 19 and 20 of John chapter 5 by talking about this submission. And he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the, Son for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. So that you may marvel. Now this is really the end goal of all preaching, of all of our experience in corporate worship, of the home group Bible study you go to or the personal time of study in Scripture, the end of that is, is that you would have a new and fresh comprehension of all that you've been given in Christ. Paul prays for this in Ephesians, that we'd be able to see the, the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of, of God's love and comprehend the incomprehensible. And, and this is, I think, all of us have experienced this, where you kind of sort of know your Christian stuff in your head, but down deep inside, it hasn't saturated the entirety of your being. And so the purpose of coming and studying scriptures, even some that you may be familiar with, or the exposition of certain doctrinal things in scripture, is not to give you new, fresh information, but to allow a context for the Spirit to begin to take what we know and move it down deep into our soul. There's a considerable pressure on uh, on ministers in certain stripes in certain parts of the world and America would be one of those to be fresh and entertaining every week and bring their skill set to the table and you know and almost make it about my oratory or a preacher's oratory instead of what it really is about is marveling at who Jesus is and, and so the hope would be that you'd see actually passed and through whomever was standing in front of you and actually see Christ the Lord. One important implication for us with regards to Jesus' submission to the Father is this. 
we see that his being isn't reduced one bit in submitting to another's authority. You'll hear this in the rhetoric of some. They'll say, the notion of submitting to any authority, that is an assault on my individual being. And what Jesus is showing us is that he derives fullness of life in merely submitting to the Father's plan. The Father shows him, he knows the Father loves him. The Father's showing him what it is. And then he's saying, I'll do what the Father says. And if that's right for Jesus, it is certainly right for us. If it is, it is refreshing and, build up and, and, and constructive for Jesus, if it is beneficial for Jesus, then we can take heart that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, as we're told to in Scripture, is good for us. The raw and painful truth is that most of us make decisions in a vacuum of our own so-called wisdom because we don't want to have to admit our need for others or we don't want counsel in life because we just want what we want. And I can testify to this. I'm an expert at this. Decades of foolishness in my life, ignoring, or better yet, just pretending they didn't, that I didn't need other people's perspectives on life. And what that did was produced broken promises and painful consequences. So we must be cautious not to make foolish decisions without a willingness to allow trusted and wise and godly friends and family and mentors to chime in with their wisdom before we decide what to do. This is what Scripture is, is telling us. You see, if, if God's in authority and we want to follow and trust God, then we have to recognize our need for others to help us discern that path. And in so doing, what we do is humble ourselves and then discover the beauty of God's plan for our life and even the difficult things that we have to go through through the, through the embracing of others and their contributions to our life, through the pursuit of mentors to say, help me see and frame and understand the world as I see it. All of these things seek to help us trust God's authority in a meaningful way. Two aspects of Jesus' character, two of his attributes are seen very clearly in our text today. And honestly, somebody could, and the commentary, I, I'm one of the commentaries I reference in my preparation for our time together is uh, James Montgomery Boyce's series in the Gospel of John. And he does like a, a whole sermon on a verse, on like a single verse and I'm just not that smart, but I'll tell you, in many ways, it is humbling to know that there's a, there's an unending buffet of information about your God in the scriptures. The two aspects of his character I want you to see, his attributes would first be that the son, Jesus, has sovereignty over salvation. Sovereign. It's a word that means rule. Jesus' kingdom is this world. And he rules and reigns in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the sovereign. Look at what the verses say, 21 through 24 of John 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed away, has passed from death to life. When you see words like truly, truly, this is for emphasis. Jesus is trying to get you to say, there are certain things that are true. But then in a biblical way, he says, there are certain true truths that are like hardcore, this is a reality, grasp onto this. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus is the one, according to this scripture, that has the ability to choose who he's going to bring life to and who he isn't going to bring life to. This means he is sovereign as creator, and he was the one through whom all things are created. John testifies to that. Historic Christianity has encapsulated this and in the Nicene Creed, and incidentally, we're going to study that in 2019. But he continues to rule and reign over all things. And last week, we also cited Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus, post-resurrection, says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which would be an amazingly obnoxious claim if it weren't true. But Jesus is, in fact, the sovereign Who does the Son give life to? He chooses. Who passes from death to life? He even tells us. Whoever will believe. Because they, he and the Father, are one in being. What happens when a person does not honor the Son, they are dishonoring the Father. Many have a tough time with this notion of exclusivity, as if there aren't times where Jesus makes it very clear that he is the only way to the Father. And we'll see that a handful of places here in the Gospel of John. But logically speaking, understand that Jesus can't be God, part of the triune God, and then there be another God somewhere out there. Or there be another means to God. He either is God or he isn't God, and this whole thing's a farce. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one in being. If you honor the Father, you, you have to honor me. Je- Jesus is making a declaration of his superiority. He is the creator. Why shouldn't he get to be superior over all of his creation, including the philosophical and religious minds that have traversed history? And I would say, while I am a huge believer in a pluralistic culture, and I would defend anyone in our country's right to believe whatever they want to believe as long as they're willing to defend mine. And I get living in a democracy where we give a religious freedom to believe or not believe anything at all. Those are terrific things. But ultimately, God is not one who says, you can believe whatever you want, and I don't care. Jesus is making it very clear here. You know, if you honor the Father, you have to honor me. Me and the Father, we're we're one. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to these declarations by Jesus from this passage. The Son gives life to who He will. All judgment is the purvey of the Son. 
The Son must be honored in the same manner as the Father. And probably most striking is that belief in Jesus as co-equal with the Father is the condition for eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. Judgment, as we've already studied in this series, has, is, has already come. Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save. So whether or not you escape judgment is whether or not you put your faith and trust in Christ. Jesus has said, who hears my word and believes, that's the one who saved. And this is where the language of love gets confused in popular culture. Love isn't always a light and fluffy feeling. As anybody who has had a drug addict in their home will tell you, there's a moment of tough love for these people where they have to tell them, you are going to have to go to rehab or you have to move out. Now, some people think that's just so hard. How, how would somebody do that? And I've watched parents just tear themselves up with having to that moment of truth where they have to say, I am actually harming somebody by giving them what they want. So love sometimes, I, in my experience, it often is not giving me what I want, but giving me what is best for me. Love isn't the absence of truth. It's always rooted in and based upon the truth. As John 1.14 says, Jesus came in grace and truth. So for Jesus to say, you must honor him, it is not his gargantuan ego run amok. Jesus isn't a crazed political figure who's so insecure he demands loyalty from subordinates. He is loving you and I to demand that we properly see him as the creator in charge. Why? Because you and I will only know peace when we see the world correctly, which is through his eyes. When you see yourself as sovereign or needing to be sovereign and in control of everything, it negatively affects your perceptions of life's events. And, mind you, as a footnote and a side detraction, makes everybody in your life miserable because you're trying to control everything and you can't you don't need to is jesus's point by lovingly requiring us to see ourselves as we are and see him as he is jesus is properly getting the honor that he deserves as our creator and redeemer but he's also correcting our sight so that we can see the world the way it's supposed to be seen. He's the creator, we're the created. He's the sovereign, we are the servants. We are the citizens of his kingdom. And the events of our lives, he is sovereignly overseeing. Even the means by which we come to believe. Jesus was said in John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we have been provided through our faith the opportunity to rest in Him for eternal life. John 6.40, which we'll cover obviously in our next chapter, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The Son has been given the authority by the Father and the Holy Spirit in the eternal community of the Trinitarian God 
This son has been entrusted to determine to whom he will give eternal life. In the 44th verse of our next chapter, John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And one of my favorite scriptures, incredibly comforting on those days when I feel like, man, this life is really chaotic. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It's that hold together piece of this verse that really helps me when I feel like the world's coming unglued. And there have been a season or two in my life where God allowed me to see that I was being so proud to think I could manage my life on my own. I didn't need Him. The chaos of my life reminded me, I'm the one, Chuck, holding things together. You are the fortunate beneficiary of my benevolence and kindness. You are the one who gets to sit in peace because I am working, holding things together. He is the image of the invisible God. He shares the glory of the invisible God. John Owen, the great theologian, once said this. It meant a lot to me. It's a lengthy quote, but I share it with you for your benefit this morning. This is the original glory of Christ given him by his Father, and which by faith we may behold. He, and he alone, declares, represents, and makes known unto angels and men the essential glory of the invisible God, his attributes and his will, without which a perpetual comparative darkness would have been upon the whole creation, especially that part of it here below. This is the foundation of our religion, the rock whereon the church is built, the ground of all our hopes of salvation, of life and immortality, all is resolved into this, namely the representation that is made of the nature and will of God and the person and office of Christ. If this fail us, we are lost forever. If this rock stand firm, the church is safe here and shall be triumphant hereafter. See, the reality of who Jesus is are by His grace growing comprehension of His authority, His sovereignty over all things. This is what gives our heart rest because He loves us. We need not stress. Jesus is the glory of the invisible God. The second attribute you see in Jesus is that the Son has justification for judgment. He has sovereignty over salvation but that the Son actually is the one given the right to make judgments. Judging from our perspective is wrong, but if you're the holy God, you're entitled to that. Verses 25 through 27 read, Truly, truly, another truly, truly, which right away hopefully got your attention this time. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Truly, truly, Jesus is saying, right now, there is this moment for all of us where we have to, if you will, choose. Do we believe in Christ as the risen Son of God, the creator of the universe, manifest in human form, do we have this moment of conversion where we hear Him and live? Now he says the dead. He's not talking about the people in the grave. He's saying the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is the moment we live in. The Father who wasn't created, God has existed from all eternity. In the same way, Jesus is claiming that he is co-equal with God. He's saying, I have life in myself, and I've been given the authority to execute judgment. There is for each person a moment of hearing when they either respond affirmatively to the call of Jesus in their life or they ignore him. We see Jesus in Scripture saying to people, come and follow me. And at that moment, they either drop what they're doing and follow him or they simply choose not to. Clearly understand for me, if you would, that the basis for being a follower of Jesus is not your goodness or your good works. It's the gracious invitation of Jesus. He knows you're broken. He knows you're a struggler. He knows that you're weak. He knows that about me too. He knew that about his disciples. He just said, come, walk with me. Be in relationship with me. Follow me. And this is what he calls us to. But in order to have fellowship with Jesus, you must actually walk where and as he does. You cannot say as so many do, I have a relationship with Jesus, but... I just don't follow him. doesn't mean you follow him perfectly, but if your attitude is one of saying, you know what, I just disagree with Jesus. And I believe you me, I've had people say that to me. I think Jesus is great. I just disagree with him. And I always find myself thinking, wow, that's a bold claim. Because what it does is it demonstrates that they don't see who Jesus is. You don't get to disagree with God. He's the creator. Now, if Jesus isn't the creator, yeah, disagree with him all day long. But if he be who he claims to be and being one with the Father, you submit to him. He properly is the one to call you to follow him. Jesus even says in John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this. We'll get back to that. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is telling us, this shouldn't shock us that Jesus has the right to be the judge, to be the arbiter of whose hearts are in the right place and who's really following him and who's staging it for public approval or who's simply ignoring him altogether. Jesus is saying that our human pride shouldn't get all aghast when the holy God decides to exert his divine right to hold people accountable for their evil actions. 
following him means by his grace and strength walking as Jesus did. The scripture here says that when this judgment takes place, those who have done good go to the resurrection of life. But you have to understand this in the context of the rest of scripture. Your good works aren't what make you a Christian. Grace precedes faith. Jesus extends salvation to you, an invitation to walk with him just because he loves you. A person's ability to believe is something that is a gift from him to comprehend who he is and follow. Genuine faith produces somebody who says, I may stink at this, but I'm going to try to follow you by your strength. You can maybe work it in me to do that progressively better as I work my way through life. But my heart now is, I want to please you. Faith without works is a dead faith. It means that it never was actually living to begin with. The flip of that, though, is that works without faith are self-honoring. I've had this discussion with people over the years. Well, isn't it enough that I just do good things? And the answer to that is, I think good things are great. But good things, scripturally, are doing things for the right reason. Uh, People will be judged for the absence of good works, but good works are defined as works done for the honor of Jesus. See, it's like Jesus when he said, I see what the Father's doing and I do that so that you will see him. It's the same way. We're saying, I see what Jesus does, I'm going to imitate Jesus, not so that you'll go, what an amazing Jesus follower you are. But instead, what an amazing Jesus you follow. This is about him. This is not about us. The glory of Christ is the goal of good works, not my self-righteous sense. Belief is simply following and trusting and knowing that we're good because of Christ. He has made us acceptable to the Father. But following is obeying. Jesus already said this. We studied this in John 3, verses 35 through 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I've recently come to discover that I have over the years, 50 years of them, done some real damage uh, to some parts of my body, particularly my knees. This is a combination of basketball when I was younger and being way too heavy for the past two decades. So I have effectively created a problem for myself. And uh, I'm going to see a, a sports medicine guy this week. I had a doctor look at my knee this past week, said it's likely a meniscus tear and it's painful. You've been to the doctor and gotten a diagnosis before. The problem isn't the diagnosis, it's like they go, okay, and this is what's going to be required of you. And I was told this week, it's most likely for you, physical therapy. I was sort of hoping for a pill or something simple, you know, no effort on my part. How can we fix this? Uh, Not so lucky, apparently. And, and, And I would say this, with regards to Christian faith, most of us, I would say, and I think it's fair because I've talked with quite a few people most of us would say that, that the church, in our experience, has not been short on diagnosing the sin problem in our life. 
I mean, we all get it, right? <laughs> I mean, if you don't, you haven't really been listening or you haven't been going to a church that actually teaches Scripture. I'm saying that's not been problematic for most of us. What's been problematic is the, okay, what's, what do we do now? It's, it's the what do I do now that you've aptly pointed out how holy God is and how unholy I am. What am I I supposed to do with all this data? How do I not leave here and never come back because I feel like garbage? And this is why so many people just never come back because they never get like the good news. And this is where the good news actually gets really good. You see, the question what now in, in some ways is our corporate question of what do I do if I no, I'm supposed to obey Jesus, but I don't want to. Or what do I do if I'm failing consistently at any exercise of discipline to follow God? The good news of the gospel is that we cannot obey the law. You will never feel okay about who you are with God in the presence of God because of how well you are doing as a Christian. And the faster you and I come to that conclusion that there is no peace associated with me measuring how well I'm doing compared to you or even especially compared to God. There's, there's no peace in that. The only peace we have is that Jesus obeyed everything and he has given us that as a gift. He has imputed, theologians call it imputation, the transfer of our sin unto him so that he would be punished on the cross and the transfer of his righteousness to us. Double imputation, as a matter of fact. We have been given the righteousness of Christ by faith. Today's message may have painted the picture of God's holiness and authority and bright colors. Our response to that is to rest that we have been brought into friendship with Him. We have been made righteous in His sight through Christ. And now we get to call out to Him. The gospel frees us to go to God and admit we don't love Him. But tell Him that we want to. There's something in our hearts now that wants to love Him and wants to do it better than we've done before. We need His grace to say no to temptation. We sang about these things today. Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. My righteousness. My one defense. This is all I got is Christ. But in the practical, we come to Jesus and say, I, I, just, I recognize I'm failing at this following you thing. I, I'm dropping uh, more balls than I'm catching. I'm, I'm making more mistakes than good things. And Jesus is saying, my goal in all this is that you would simply enjoy my presence and learn to love me, to grow in your love for me, which may at times be you saying, help me, give me hunger for your word. Give me hunger for other Christians. They're kind of driving me crazy. Uh, give me, these are things you've said you want to use for my spiritual growth. Help me out here. Help me want to go to church for goodness sake. You know, help me. Lord Jesus, help me want to obey you when the chips are really down and I'm tempted in a way that keeps coming back at me again and again and again. The gospel frees us to go. It, fear, it, it liberates us from fear of judgment so we can bask in the presence of Jesus and allow him to change us and our desires. 
It's the posture of humility that Jesus is looking for. The scriptures from the Proverbs to the book of James say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in all of this, this is what's in play. It's Jesus, our Savior, having authority, but being more gracious than we could have ever imagined. Having the authority to judge, but extending mercy to the humble. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, It is not often that a man may safely speak about his own humility. Humble men are mostly conscious of great pride, while those who are boastful of humility have nothing but false pretense and really lack and need it. Lord, give us that we would be people of humility who were secure in his love, but humble enough to recognize His holiness and majesty, our Savior, Jesus, the one who's come to give us the life that He can impart from Himself. So let's pray to that end, shall we?